views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Martin won't even get out of bed in the morning until he's checked his horoscope. Just to make sure that it's safe. Well, I don't have to check it this morning. Today is my lucky day. Did I hear you correctly? You consider Friday the 13th a lucky day? Of course. Now, I know that over the years it has acquired an unsavory connotation. But ancient civilizations regarded the day as a symbol of good luck. Really? In fact, the Phoenicians had a saying. On Friday 13th, fish for flounder, sure to catch plump 50-pounder. <laughs> that must have lost something in the translation. <laughs> Scoffer. He doesn't even believe in the Incan mystique of numbers. Well, I'm afraid I'm not acquainted with it myself. Oh, well then let me explain it to you. <laughs> How did this get here? Hmm, probably dropped off the waiter's tray. But since fate seems to have meant it for you, well... This is your lucky day. Big decisions will turn out well. Uncanny. Yes, it's almost as though someone were trying to tell you something. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, June the 12th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Welcome back to the show today as it is here every Thursday here at CHRW. 519-661-3600 is the open line number. You can call if you want to join in the conversation today or, uh, you know, add a comment or a question. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about Moronica's media, the leaders of our idiocracy. We're going to be talking about a greater inconvenience. We're going to be peering through the plastic hypocrisy and how London is going to perhaps be known as the city of inconvenience. And of course, first off the top, we're going to be talking about, in the age of reason and science, a very superstitious world. Now last week I promised I was... I was done with the whole eco-fascism thing for the time being. And, uh, well, I guess I lied, or at least I made another prediction that failed to come true. I was so overwhelmed by all the green crap in my newspaper and magazine clippings that the issue was just unavoidable, folks. Just this past week's clippings filled an entire physical file folder. I still, I still use actual newspapers, you know, not everything just off the Internet, uh, on green issues, while other... I would think more important issues like healthcare garnered a total of three news items out of five publications over the two weeks. Um, you know, and these were all disastrous things that they were reporting, but nothing really new we haven't talked about on the show before. And, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that just to read the headlines uh, without the content of each of these articles would probably have taken me 20 to 25 minutes on a show like this. Uh, so... This week I thought I'd put a slightly different spin on my approach to the issue, put a little bit of a different theme to it. And uh, don't be surprised if uh, you hear a bit of sarcasm, ridicule, disgust, and frustration, because I'm getting there, I'm getting there. <laughs> I thought I could restrain myself, but sometimes I feel a little bit um, out of control, a little helpless against this just onslaught 
of irrationality just accompanying the whole so-called environmental movement, which is really, as I've been saying, an anti-industrialist, anti-capitalist campaign run by the usual gang, the usual socialist fascist people. These terms we've defined and placed in their proper perspective on our past three shows, so if you think they're too strong, too offensive, too insulting, well, good, because the environmentalists, I think, deserve it. And what you'll be hearing from the environmental movement in coming weeks on this show will make everything I've documented so far on the show just pale by comparison. Some of the things you folks have been bringing to my attention is just amazing, and it just confirms everything I've been saying. But right now, tomorrow's Friday the 13th, and since this show, Just Right, airs only on Thursdays, I'll never have the unlucky experience of having to do the show on Friday the 13th, right? But the show will, of course, remain available online at www.justrightmedia.org on Friday the 13th, assuming that the server doesn't go down or that the power doesn't go out or that today's show doesn't get archived, which almost happened once, or, you know, knock on wood... Something really unlucky happens. <laughs> a few months ago, I was really taken aback by the response of open line callers to a talk show responding to the question of whether or not they believed that an apocalypse was imminent and whether they believed in prophecies. And sure enough, a steady line of callers proudly got on the air to announce to one and all that they held all these strangely irrational beliefs, all different from each other, and with a certainty that you would never see displayed by scientists or philosophers. Some of the things they postulated were literally beyond belief, and I had no idea that in this age of science, reason, and relative enlightenment, how many people actually really believe, all for their own reasons, in what I have to call utterly superstitious things. And when I heard that show, I remember being kind of down the whole day, kind of depressed me, because I'm thinking, boy, these people have a vote too, and who knows what kind of terms they're voting on. Went, as I usually do, I went to my sources of reference, encyclopedia, a couple of dictionaries, and I looked up what actually the word superstition means. Now, my world reference encyclopedia says, quote, that superstition is credulity regarding the supernatural or matters beyond human powers, belief in the direct, uh, you know, agents of superior powers in certain events as a belief in witchcraft, apparitions, magic, omens, charms, and the like a belief that the fortunes of individuals are or can be, you know, affected by things deemed lucky or unlucky. It goes both ways, doesn't it? Or that disease can be cured by charms, incantations, and the like. Superstitions concerning various articles of food, animals, days of the week, and even most ordinary events of life are common. Not only among, this is important, not only among the ignorant and lower classes of mankind, but among the highly educated and cultured. The origin and influence of these superstitions is an interesting study, the, the, the encyclopedia says. The belief that it is unlucky to spill salt at the table originated in the legend that at the Last Supper, Judas Iscariot, who went thence to betray the Lord and Master, upset the salt cellar while reaching out his hand. Among common superstitions are those which regard as unlucky the seeing of a new moon over the left shoulder. Can't say I've actually heard of that one the beginning of a journey or, ent or any enterprise on a Friday. Well, boy, Friday, Friday gets hit a lot, doesn't it? The passing under a raised ladder, the meeting of a hunchback, there's one I never heard of before, the presence of a peacock's feathers in a room, the killing of a cat, putting on the left shoe before the right, cutting the nails or hair of a child before it's a year old, end quote. I didn't know 
about a lot of those superstitions, but I guess must, enough people must have them to get into an encyclopedia. My Funkin' Wagnalls, on the other hand, says that superstition is a belief founded on irrational feelings, especially of fear and marked by a trust, here again, in charms, omens, the supernatural, etc. Also, any rite or practice inspired by such a belief. And the second definition is any unreasonable belief. Now, the interesting thing is the entomology of this word comes from the word super, which means over, and stare, to stand still. And I had to go to another dictionary yet to even find out more information on that, and that was my Webster's um, Unabridged, the big thick one that you need one of those magnifying glasses to read. And it says, A standing still over or near a thing, amazement, wonder, dread, from superstays, from one who stands by or is present, super above, and sistere, causal or stare, to stand. And it is any belief or attitude inconsistent with the known laws of science, or with what is generally considered in the particular society as true and rational, especially such a belief, again, here they say it again, charms, omens, and the supernatural. Now, you know, a lot of people might say, you know, supernatural, that almost always writes off religion right off the bat, but that may not always be the case, depending on the context. We've talked about religion on this show before. Uh, one of my favorite writers uh, from, oh boy, the early last century is H.L. Mencken, and he wrote some interesting things about uh, superstition and believing in uh, things that just cannot be proved. And, uh, but he made some interesting comments. He said, uh, it seems to be difficult, if not impossible, for human beings to avoid thinking of government as a mystical entity with a nature all, and history all of its own. It constitutes for them a creature somehow interposed between themselves and the great flow of cosmic events. And they look to it to think for them and to protect them. And he adds that the believing mind is eternally impervious to evidence. The most that can be accomplished with it is to induce it to substitute one delusion for another. It rejects all overt evidence as wicked. And then he talks about some other issues that I've talked about on this show before. For example, he says, here's how he refers to communism, okay, from the left. Like any other revealed religion is largely made up of prophecies, and this is so true of the environmental movement as well. When they fail to come off, its clergy simply say that they will be realized later on, and that too is what the environmental movement does. Thus, if we have another boom, they'll argue that the collapse of capitalism is only postponed, and there's that word again, they're always opposed to capitalism. The fact that the greatest booms ever heard of followed Marx's formal prophecy of the downfall of capitalism is already forgotten, just as millions have long since forgotten the early Christian prophecy that the end of the world was at hand. Christians accepted postponements as docilely as the communists of today. The early Christians believed in the imminent end of the world mainly because they were hard up, he says, and suffering all sorts of pains and inconveniences. Isn't that an interesting word? The fact that they were happy people, or that there were happy people in the world, apparently never occurred to them. When they heard happiness mentioned, they always put it down to sin. And then he adds, it's hard to read the history of the religious wars that once raged in Europe without getting a feeling that one is moving in a world of psychopaths. Why indeed should any sane person submit to being butchered on account of a puerile and unintelligible dispute over transubstantiation, the atonement, the immaculate conception, or some other such metaphysical banshee? It does not surprise me, of course, says Mencken, to hear the majority 
try to exterminate the minority, for that is what the majority always does when it can. What I can't understand is that the minority should have submitted to the slaughter voluntarily and almost gladly, end quote. Now, I know that uh, popular radio psychologist Dr. Joy Brown, she talks about superstition every now and then, and she says superstition's about power and observes that the people least in power are the most superstitious and vice versa. So, you know, superstition is largely born out of association, too. That uh, I know there was this uh, uh, experiment brought to my attention where apparently uh, monkeys in a natural environment, if you give them food under a, a consistently under a toy, then by association they associate that food with the toy and they think there's a cause and effect there. And, uh, of course... That's just not the case. But we, ha we see many evidences, of, or evidence, a lot of evidence of uh, superstition in, in modern society, even to the point of like not seeing 13th floors on so many buildings, and people arguing that Apollo 13 was unlucky, and numbers like 666, and all of these uh, basically don't amount to much more than superstition. Now, one of the people I've mentioned on this show before is a philosopher named John McMurray. He has some interesting things to say. And if you want to know more about him, again, we've, we've done that on the show before. Now, he refers to an argument that he thinks we all take for, for, for granted, I guess. He says it's, it's this argument which draws a philosophical conclusion from scientific premises. It assumes that we become rational in the process of growing up, and that the more rational we become, the more we grow out of our childish fantasies. So the further society evolves, the more rational it becomes, the more mature the human race becomes, the more the superstitions and the mythologies of primitive life fade out. But, he says, and this was written about half a century ago, a little more than that, well, maybe almost a century now, there's no empirical evidence for this type of belief. It is indeed the characteristic myth of the 20th century. Our superstitious belief that society is or ought to be organic, again, that's very much from the, uh, uh, the global warming movement, is itself a wish for the irresponsibility of the primitive. And I, I think that's just an incredible insight to have made so long ago before we even had all of this nonsense with uh, global warming. For it is a, a primitive society which is almost nearly organic in form as any society can be, and social development moves away from the organic type. That's because we get more technological, of course. Now, the state, as a legal organization of society, is essentially pragmatic, says McMurray. It's the technological aspect of society. So its only value lies its in, a, in, a, in its efficiency, basically. It's a means, not an end, and has no value in itself. It is therefore a radical error, he says, to treat the law or the state, which is a creature of the law, as if it were self-justifying or had any raison d'etre other than its usefulness. The state is a public utility, should be treated and judged as such. It is a dangerous error, warns McMurray, to personalize the state and to attribute to it characters or qualities which belong only to human beings. And above all, to feel for the state the kind of reverence for the law, you know, the, the sort of respect that is appropriate to persons, is, he says, emotional unreason, the very essence of superstition. To worship the state is to worship in idolatry. If I am not mistaken, he says, we live in a society which is becoming increasingly a prey to this superstition, at a point in history where the destruction of personal values, to which it must lead, can be likely swift and catastrophic. The root of the error is to be found in the illusion 
in the illusions of the Romantic movement, and it consists in assigning religious functions to the state, in looking to political organization to create community amongst men. This is the biggest issue that people like David Suzuki and most of the environmentalists are fa facing. And all you know, totalitarian leaders of the past, they all shared this exact same dream. And it's a historical fact. They talked in the same language, used the same words, admired the same philosophers. And he says, there's no need to wonder how it comes about that a neurotic visionary like Hitler can come to control the destinies of a great nation, nor that he uses his power in a mad fury of meaningless destruction. We know quite well that this is how fear works in human relations. What we forget is that the state is merely a set of devices to make law and to make it effective, and that the law is a device for securing justice. So we're brought back to the question of justice. And he asks, what is it? And he says, well, that's a proper question, but it's not the primary one. The real one, he says, is do we intend justice or not? Because justice is an aspect of morality. You know, if the power of the state is not to be mis misused, then those whose power maintains it, and that's the society, the people, the democracy, they must intend justice. So far as a society intends justice, the law will be properly used. So far as this is not the general intention, the law will be misused. It will be used to maintain a special privilege, to secure privileged positions of one person or group or nation in relations to others, so as to become a device for denying justice. When the law, so when the law is perverted into an instrument for the defense of privilege and for the perpetuation of injustice, this is basically what happened in ancient Greece, he says, and it destroyed the Greek way of life. It's happening today on a scale that involves the whole world. And in the political field, he concludes, the condition of avoiding this ca catastrophe depends upon intending justice, and this is incompatible with the worship of the state, which is merely the worship of power, end quote. Which brings us back to superstition and how it affects mostly those who do not feel they have any power, regardless of how educated or enlightened they may imagine themselves to be. Modern science is very liable to superstition, writes McMurray, and tends to breed superstition in its devotees. There are fashions and superstitions, as there are in hats, and the current superstitions are scientific. Science does not worship. It inquires, analyzes, classifies, and does sums, end quote. But of course, environmentalists do worship. Not necessarily God, but Mother Earth. And to convince non-believers to join their religion, the environmental movement attempts to use science. And I think that's bad luck for all of us, as we shall see when we return right after this break. We'll be back in a couple minutes. Every time I let go of this book, mm -hmm. it will fall. It requires no faith on my part, nor on yours. And no amount of prayer will stop it from falling. Whether or not I choose to believe in the laws of gravity, they still keep my feet on the ground. Hear him? He defies nature. I explain nature with science. Why should it be more pious to believe that the gods created a world we can't understand? Because God works in mysterious ways. His mysteries are his mysteries. But wouldn't you like medicines that could cure the sick? Machines that could fly? Light that could burn without flame. All this from science? All this and more. All from the ingenuity of man. And you say these laws that science has discovered, they are forever true? 
Once set in motion, an object will stay in motion until acted upon by an outside force. So it is possible to interfere with these laws? Uh, no, only the object. The laws themselves cannot be changed. This girl's death was set in motion. Her breathing had stopped. Her soul was on its way to heaven until you interfered. It's not the same. No. She is the object. The soul called back to the gods. Either you are witches defying the natural order of life, or I'll have no choice but to send this child back to the gods. that child's life but he did not raise her from the dead you yourself said she stopped breathing not breathing doesn't mean not alive of course it does no there are other signs electrical impulses in the brain until they are extinguished life is still possible you can see them these electrical whatever in the child no electrical impulses they can't be seen yet you're sure they're there yes then it's a question of faith science has shown us that they exist but you can't see them, you can't feel them, but you believe in them as we believe in the gods that we cannot see or feel. They are an underlying principle of life. I do not need to be able to see the air in order to know that I am breathing. Yes, I say the same thing about the gods. You and I, we're not so different. We both explain life and death by placing our faith in a higher power. Your science is nothing more than a new religion, a new heresy. You are condemned by your own words. Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz, and, you're li- and we'll be with you from now until noon. 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join us. Peering through the plastic hypocrisy, you hear all the nonsense about the plastic water bottles that will uh, be, quote, banned, end quote, uh, for sale in City Hall. Walter Lonk, Ward 7 counselor and member of the City's Environment and Transportation Committee, was on a radio show this past Monday defending the principle behind the City of London's banning the sales of single-use water bottles on municipally owned properties, though he never did define the principle. Now, You know, the city certainly has the right to decide what to do on municipally owned properties, but the thinking and motive behind their their uh, rationality appears to defy logic to most common sense people, I think. But that misunderstanding and confusion only arises if one innocently assumes that the motives behind uh, environmentalists has something to do with protecting the environment, whatever that might mean to them. Now, it's interesting that the only target of the city's so-called ban is bottles that contain water without any additives. You got sugar in the water? That's okay. You can still sell it, and you can still use that plastic water bottle. So what gives? Well, explains Walter Ward, 7 Councillor, last Monday, tonight's vote is simply to endorse the principle of the ban as an education project to, to educate us that city water is good. There you go. City water is good. City water is good. Write that a hundred times on the blackboard and you will have accomplished the goal that they are trying to get at. 
Most interesting, Lonk added that you can still bring your water bottles with your own water as long as you don't buy them on city property or at designated functions. It's just a matter of bringing it with you, he said. Now, as I illustrated last week, here again we see the politics of inconvenience being used as a tool by all our social engineers to force the rest of us to think and act like they do, since they seem to require our agreement to justify their actions. Jay Stanford, on the same day in another radio interview, referred to the water bottles as being, quote, so convenient, and therefore requiring those who use the bottles to go through a behavior change by forsaking the convenience of buying the water on site, in favor of having to buy it off-site and bring it with you. We're trying to shame people for carrying bottles around, was the implication. Then he said the most outrageous and laughable thing. He said that we've got a generation of kids who think that water comes from bottles, quote, and that by drinking from, you know, from the city-provided public water fountains, the savings for water bottle drinkers are enormous. Why pay two bucks for a few cents worth of water, he asks? Because by buying bottled water, consumers are paying 3 to $4 for per liter of water, which is 100 to 300, or 3,000 times, he says, more expensive than tap water provided by the city. I don't know how it can vary from 100 to 3,000. Boy, that's, that's a big change in price there. Now, there are really only two critical issues here, as silly as this whole bottle ban seems, and we're being given some extraordinarily valuable information with regards to what the real issues are. And again, it's not about the environment, despite what you hear them saying. Issue one, it's an attack on capitalism and freedom. When politicians decry convenience as an evil, you have to understand that to their way of thinking, convenience represents capitalism. Convenience represents profits. Convenience represents wealth. Convenience represents a society in which individuals are free to choose their own personal lifestyles. And number two, and this is what I hear most, and I think this is the real driving force behind the politics of it, and that's a government-run monopoly. When consumers, particularly the richer tax-paying consumers, are getting more and more of their drinking water from bottled sales, I think their interest in maintaining a tax-funded, expensive municipal water system for drinking water becomes a bit diminished. And, of course, the people who, and I'm not one of them, I don't buy, I, actually, I don't even remember the last time I had just a glass of water, probably when I was in a restaurant or something like that. But the people who regularly get their water from bottled sales obviously trust that water more than what's being provided by the municipalities. And unlike municipal provided anything, consumers can sue the bottler of the water should illness or injury arise. To do the same thing with the municipalities is way more difficult, if not impossible, and often requires class action lawsuits and a great mobilization of political forces to get on side. And I think we all have heard the name Walkerton in the past. And I, you always hear, you know, calls for consumers of municipal water services to boil their water. I hear this on an increasing basis all the time. Some people oppose fluoridation. Others, the chemicals added to keep the water drinkable. So there are many personal reasons beyond convenience to buy bottled water. But convenience is the main enemy of the left as it, you know, manifests itself through the so-called environmental movement. Convenience, of course, is the evidence that capitalism works and that all the other isms, particularly socialism and fascism, do not work. Life in dictatorial countries is not convenient. Life in, in predominantly capitalistic countries, it's much more convenient, with most inconveniences there still relating to the non-capitalistic elements in those countries, like, uh, like the environmentals. 
If you'd really like a, a good working definition of fascism, here's one that was actually used by a bona fide fascist organization back in 1934 as part of its Articles of Faith, the National Union for Social Justice. Quote, I believe in upholding the right of private property, yet of controlling it for the public good. End quote. I got that on page 142 out of Liberal Fascism, a book I've been talking about for the past few weeks by Johann Goldberg. Now, this pledge of social justice is the essence of the distinction between fascism and socialism, which, in which only the use of the word private would be changed to read public in that definition, meaning, you know, the private ownership of the means of production. Again, not for consumption. Again, you know, emphasizing that anti-industrial, anti-freedom viewpoint. You know, that's, that's another issue. But it's always the issue of production, because that's the capitalist part. Um, Private property that's government-controlled, you know, you talk about, we believe in the right of private property, but controlling it. Well, that's a contradiction in terms. It can't be called private, because private means private control, and specifically not government control. That's, that's why fascism is a complete contradiction in terms and why it is so dangerous. And it's also why the left has attempted to associate it with capitalism, which is the true right, by telling people that the common denominator to both is private property. You know, you get to put your name on, a, on an ownership thing, and that's supposed to be the same as having control over it in one society and not having any control in the other society. There's two different things. And, of course, that's just completely superficial. Now, contradictions do not exist in nature, despite what you've been perhaps taught. A contradiction is always evidence of error. Uh, it could be factual, could be logical, could be moral. And the controls of which we speak are always about ownership and about money, you know, economics. Never about legitimate law matters or criminal behavior. We're always talking about money and economics, which is where we shouldn't even be, we shouldn't even be messing there. Now, back to water bottles. See how, see, how, see how such a trivial concern is really part of an incredibly huge story, this massive left-wing attack on reason and on freedom? So why target water to the exclusion of all other products that use plastic disposable bottles? Because when the consumer buys bottled water, he or she is buying much more than the water itself. They are buying convenience. They're buying comfort and the two most hated things that environmentalists target for their bans and punishments. Now, here's a thing that they will never admit and they don't want to talk about, and that is this, that convenience has a value. And whatever that value is, that's up to you. You decide what that value is, not somebody else. Why well, pay two bucks, says Jay Stanford? Well, because consumers actually think that $2 is worth the convenience. Retailers think it's worth, you know, stocking their shelves with it. The bottling industry, you know, they, t they could teach us a few realities about the water they sell because all of this is totally peaceful and consensual behavior. And by the way, the water of the city is not necessarily better than the water in the bottles. That's a mixed bag. And as I understand it, about 75% of bottled water is filtered and processed in some way to get out a lot of the stuff. So it just depends which, which brand you buy, I guess. I'm totally out of that loop because I, I don't drink from the tap or drink from the water bottle. Uh, and by the way, this behavior is termed poor behavior by Jane St Jay Stanford, and that, that's the behavior he wants to change, the behavior of uh, totally peaceful, consensual economic transaction on city property. Now, $2 a bottle is what that product is worth because that's what people are paying voluntarily. And in a free market, to argue it's so worth something else is a complete lie. And you can't say it's a ripoff because if it was a ripoff, you'd have to steal it from somebody without their consent. 
So where does the $2 go? Where should it go? Well, partially to the water. Most of it is processed, uh, partially to the production and or recycling of the plastic bottles, partially towards disposal cost, partially towards profit of the bottled water, of the water bottler, sorry, the retailer who has to carry inventory costs for stocking it on his shelf, the truck driver who transports the bottled water to the retailer, and of course the many taxes that are built into the price on the way, all along the way. You know, it's really a wonder it only costs two dollars, and. Uh, you know, I was just thinking on the side, you know what the first evidence of early civilization was? This is really more symbolic than anything. And it was pottery. Pottery was used to carry water. I wonder if they recycled or just tossed it in the landfill site. I know it wasn't biodegradable. Otherwise, we wouldn't know about it today, would we? Just another symbolic representation about how the left seems to always move away from anything that has the word civilized attached to it. Because, of course, they do prefer force in the long run. Uh, for the environmental, environmentalists, the environment represents to them a physical connection between what they perceive as the wealth of some to the harm of others. You know, they believe that one person's wealth represents another person's poverty, which is ironically true in a socialist or fascist state, but totally untrue in a free capitalist state. Capitalism, when allowed to function, always proves that statement false. So, of course, that's why they've got to eliminate it to advance their fixed pie-in-the-sky theories by doing everything possible to ensure that that economic pie does not grow. So they want to see high prices, scarcity. This breeds discontent, particularly among those least able to afford those high prices, etc. And all of this is, of course, perfectly okay with the green movement because people who get desperate don't take the time to think, and that's what they want to do. We'll be back after this with a greater inconvenience. First, some few ads, and we'll be back in a few minutes. When I was a kid, I used to live across the street from this mean little old lady who, even though she was like on her deathbed, she still managed to sit beside her window and give me the evil eye every time I walked by. So I went out and I made a voodoo doll to torment her, but I bought the wrong needles. I bought like acupuncture needles by mistake. Healed her completely. <laughs> yeah, she's still alive today. She took up Moroccan dancing and moved the apartment next door. everything you got to know from the Bible, I'm going to say it fast. A long time ago, a girl you never met is walking to a garden, talks to a snake, bites a piece of fruit. That means when you're born, you're an evil, worthless, useless piece of trash. Hey, goes without saying. Now, skip ahead, skip ahead, skip ahead. All right. Skip ahead to just right here on CHRW 94.9 FM, 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join us, or visit our website at justrightmedia.org to get uh, all the, an archive of all our past shows, including links to the current show and the current CHRW archive show. Now, here in London, we're seeing all sorts of things being advocated, banned, regulated, whatever, and it's all part of, again, the whole green movement. Green, 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 green. Everything has the word green on it these days. And I just couldn't help but <laughs> I saw this article in the London Free Press written by a London resident, someone who claims to be a London resident, June 7th, Time to Air Our Clean Laundry by Barbara Yurkowski. 
And she writes that 40 years ago, hanging out the clothes was a pleasure on warm summer days, but the indispensable clothesline performed its work even in the coldest temperatures. Clotheslines had other benefits. From time to time, we might meet a neighbor while chasing a piece of laundry the wind had carried off. However, anyone who does laundry realizes there are reasons why the dryer replaced the clothesline. And convenience is number one, she says. No one ever thought of the environmental impact, but today we cannot avoid the facts that even the more efficient clothes dryers are home energy hogs. The Ontario Ministry of Energy estimates that one dryer burns up an average of 900 kilowatt hours of electricity a year and that five dryers create the same amount of greenhouse gas emissions as one car. You know, when I hear a stat like that, my first question is, uh, so what? What are you trying to tell me? If it, was a, if it was 20 dryers, would that make a different point? If it was three dryers, I don't get what the point is. Uh, you know, obviously a dryer is going to be your energy hog. It creates heat. And then she writes, The virtue, once associated with a line of wash and the fresh air vanished along with the clothesline door. Quote. Now, that sentence is so ridiculous, it's a little difficult to address. There was never any virtue associated with hanging laundry, believe me. It was, in fact, considered kind of demeaning and a thankless task. And no rational person, quote, likes and, quote, to do laundry. Falls in the category of doing dishes, vacuuming, sweeping the floor, and a host of other uh, basic subsistence-level activities, you know, just to survive, that, that even primitive societies have to have. And she writes, quote, For when clotheslines were no longer a necessity, snobbery entered the picture. A line of wash waving in the wind became associated with a variety of sins, from poverty to bad taste. Colorful displays on the neighbor's clothes were deemed unwelcome eyesores, end quote. Well, I hate to be going the wrong way on this, but I think they are welcome, unwelcome eyesores. You know, property owners, when they move into a place, they're entitled to the enjoyment of their property. And the uses of property are usually determined consensually in advance through uh, zoning of property, covenant restrictions on property, things like that. My dad once built a house that wasn't regulated by government, but he had to use a certain type of brick to build it because there was a restriction in that, a private one, in the area where he built that house, and he had no option, but he wanted to build that house. He had to use that kind of brick, and that's not a restriction on anybody's freedom or anything like that. And then she writes, to overcome this barrier, we need more than a regulation. We need a marketing campaign to rehabilitate the clothesline, end quote. Now, at this point, her article gets so utterly silly and ridiculous, with the writer fantasizing with our lives, by the way, and our freedoms about, quote, photo ops of elegant lines strung through fancy pulleys that crisscross the yard, eco-friendly alternatives such as recycled flagpoles to reduce, to reduce the need to chop down trees. Who would have even thought of that, right? Home renovation programs highlighting the clotheslines of celebrities, end quote, and on and on. The emo this emotional drivel just occupied about two-thirds of a page in the free press. But the article does serve a most useful illustration. Here we have in one essay, it demonstrates with explicit references to almost every symptom of eco-fascism I've been talking about over the past three weeks. Number one, a hatred of convenience. She says it. And, uh, you know, this philosophy calling for regulations and education propaganda programs, an irrelevant reference to clothes dryers being energy hogs, like, you know, for heaven's sakes, give me a break, comparing them to another evil, the car. 
you know, a statement of love of the primitive lifestyle and cra craving for community. You hear that all the time, you know. Oh, it'll make us talk to people more. You can get to meet your, meet your neighbor. I'll tell you a bit about that in a minute. A reference to necessity as being justifiable, but anything beyond necessity is snobbery. Isn't that terrible? It's this appeal to a false moral high ground, a desire to use the force of law to bring the rest of the people who are above it down to their level, a desire to increase the physical labor of those doing their laundry. Uh, you know, this writer's not calling for anyone to air out, you know, air our clean laundry quote, but instead told us a lot about the dirty laundry that seems to be tumbling around in her, in her environmentalist mind here which I understand is to her all peace and love and kindness and community, etc. But, you know, those are the most dangerous kind of people when they get into politics, the people who just emote and do not think. Now, here's a few facts about airing our laundry, and I've been old enough to remember this. You know, we forget where we came from, and a lot of the people who are trying to, quote, change the world today forget what we changed it from, too. Picture this. It's a sunny afternoon. You'd like to go out in your yard and you want to have a barbecue. But your neighbors have their laundry hanging downwind from you. Do you A, wait to have your barbecue till the neighbors take their laundry down? B, light that barbecue up anyway and let the smoke and flavors from whatever you're cooking coat and permeate the neighbor's laundry? C, call your local city councilor to complain that your neighbors left his laundry hanging out for the past two days? Or D, does your neighbor get to call the cops and stop you from lighting up the barbecue? Now, unsightly laundry, you can, you can see the problems there already. And there's, you know, campfires, uh, having guests over. You want to show them your, your beautiful new home. And all around the neighborhood, there's laundry. You know, unsightly laundry is in many ways no different from unsoundly music that's blaring over your neighbor's fence into your sphere of enjoyment of your property. And this has been traditionally considered grounds to argue that one is being deprived of the enjoyment of one property, and I think that should remain so. I don't see any reason to change it. And I have to tell you, I will never forget the look of happiness on my mother's face when my dad bought our first electric clothes dryer, which relieved her from the necessity of having to hang clothes. And, you know, trust me, she had a lot of other things to occupy her time with, uh, and there's nothing particularly virtuous about drudgery. I know that the religious mind considering, could consider suffering to be a virtue, but I think that, too, is a complete moral inversion. Now, uh, of course, we heard all about the recyclable bags and, or, or, or plastic bags from the, from the grocery stores they want to get rid of. I talked a little bit about that last week, but what's really interesting about them is that they're the most recyclable kind of bags that they offer. Uh, the bags they want to replace them with are less recyclable. Um, paper bags, yeah, they, they might decompose in the in the landfill better, but that doesn't make them recyclable in the sense of being, you know, melted down, used again, over and over again. Just as with the water bottles, they're all recyclable, but the city doesn't want to do it. But that's what you get when you put the government in charge of things. When we come back after this break, Moronica's media, leaders of our idiocracy, and we'll talk about the media still going at this green issue right after this. Hail Fuhrer! job ahead is difficult. It requires courage and dedication. It requires faith. There's 
working together. Yeah. His speech the follows no logical pattern. Random sentences strung together. He looks drugged, Jim. Almost at a cataleptic state. To reach our goal. This planet can become a paradise if we are willing to pay the price. As each cell in the body works with discipline and harmony. What do you mean by reading a book? Suppose you learn something. Loyal Moronicans shouldn't read. Take your troops out and have them burn every book in Moronica. Not my little red book. Our motto shall be Moronica for morons! We will have less work and more play. Every Thursday you will receive hamburger and eggs. Addition to those hamburger and eggs, every Thursday you get your weekly diet of just right, right here at CHRW 94.9 FM. And every Tuesday, you should shut off your air conditioner. At least that's the suggestion of Chris Bentley, MPP for London West, which I heard or read about in, uh, in an editorial by Paul Burton. Now, Paul Burton, editor of the London Free Press, writes editorials that never cease to amaze me, really, for their, for their utter superficiality. But more than that, Burton's left-wing statist leanings overshadows everything he writes to the point of idiocy. I read the free press mostly because I have to, given you know my career choices in life to say nothing of doing this show. The free press, but you know, is for me really. It's exhibit A as how to, how not to run a paper, how not to report the news, how not to allow a debate on issues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's a classic example of the type of anti-intellectual journalism that was the target of Ayn Rand's novel, The Fountainhead, which was made into a movie. Paul Burton and many other free press writers are literal characters out of that book. And if you really want to know what makes such people tick, because they don't, they don't even know, I recommend reading The Fountainhead. Now, of course, from time to time, there's good editorialists and accurate news, and I don't mean just because I agree with them, but because they're just that few and far between. So how dumb can it actually get? Here's a couple of examples. A challenge for cities and air conditioners, writes Burton in May 31st Free Press. And he writes, quote, like most Ontario politicians, Chris Bentley has good reason for wanting people to save energy whenever and wherever they can. The MPP for London West and Ontario's Attorney General knows well the crisis Ontario faces as more people consume ever more energy. End quote. Now, exactly what crisis does Ontario face as more people consume more energy? Uh, they don't say. The lack of clarity on that very question. It permeates all green literature and left-wing thinking. The real crisis, of course, is that the Ontario government may not be able to meet our electrical energy needs in this province. So they want to blame the environment for the government's shortcomings. In fact, just this past Monday when we had that heat wave, we were already importing electricity. Ontario could not produce enough electricity to meet our needs just this past Monday, and that was hardly crisis stage. Quote, so Bentley has an intriguing idea based on the, success, on the success of Earth Hour in March. Give me a break. He suggests for one day each week this summer, we simply turn off our residential air conditioners and challenge other communities to do the same. Says Bentley, let's, let's say London chooses Tuesday. We challenge Kitchener-Waterloo. 
Over the course of the summer, every residential consumer in each community turns off their air conditioning every Tuesday. We could ask London Hydro to monitor the savings, as they did for Earth Hour, and compare them to Kitchener-Waterloo. That's Bentley speaking now. Back to Burton, he says, uh, let's face it, air conditioning isn't as necessary, there's that word again, as lighter heat, and it is, and is it asking too much to turn off your system for one day each week? Too many of them run on cool days when an opened window would do the trick. I don't know how many people leave their air conditioners on when the open window would do the trick. I sure don't. He writes, there was a time not long ago, of course, when... Uh, of course, that air conditioners were unheard of in most houses, workplaces, schools, let alone cars, even boats, end quote. Same argument that Jay Stanford gave about, uh, about the water bottles. He says, you know, 10 years ago, there was no such thing. Again, let's go back to the primitive. We didn't have cars either. We didn't have planes. We didn't have heat, for heaven's sake. How far back are you going to go, guys? And he, he reminds us that Earth Hour started in Sydney, Australia, spread around the world. And then he, he writes, opinions and calculations differ on how much energy was saved. But we can all agree, okay, we can all agree that it would have been considerable. Maybe, just maybe, an effort to curtail our air conditioner use in London and region could spread throughout the province, the continent, and the world, he writes. End quote. Now, this again is typical left-wing thinking, end quote. I have to put thinking in brackets there, in quotes. We can't measure the success of Earth Hour, but we can agree it was considerable. This is purely consensus, a purely consensus-driven mind at work, utterly dependent upon the views of the collective. No independent thought going on here at all, as is, as is really demonstrated by this article, which appeared June 7th, again by Paul Burton, the, our false crisis creator. A big storm is coming. Are we ready for it, he says on June 7th's point of view. Quote, a big storm is coming to London. When it comes, it will be as big or likely bigger than the one that flooded much of the city in 1937. The only question is when it will come. If we use current models, it is not expected for another 200 years. But there is a growing concern, given changes to the world's climate, that it may come considerably sooner. Now, that's an interesting admission in many ways. I don't know if he knows what he just said. First of all, I think he's right symbolically. A big storm is coming, except it's going to be more like the one from 1939. And Burton is one of that storm's fronts. But, he, you know, he talks about there's a growing concern. No, there isn't. I've never heard about any growing concern, given changes to the world's climate. I haven't heard about that. And he says, uh, uh, you know, given changes to the world climate, that, that might, might become sooner, after he's just told us about the current models they use. In other words, he's saying that our climate changes are affecting the computer model projections and prove them wrong all the time. So we've always got to update them, right? So they're all, I'll keep, keep them updated, you know? And he writes, storms once expected every 20 years, I don't know by whom, who expected them, uh, are now coming every 5 to 15 years, he writes. Now, just a sentence like that can drive me crazy. I have to ask myself, how do they know that the last early storm in 2008 was that particular storm that was originally expected in 2028. How do they know that? I'd like to see the science behind that one, particularly because it's not true. Storm frequencies from everything I've read have decreased with the warming trends. But never mind that. There's no mention of the facts or even a debate on them. Quote, this is apparent not just to experts in London, but also to people across the country and indeed the world, end quote. Well, let's examine this so-called science of Burton's mythical and emotional claim here. Like, to me, this is a bit of a no-brainer, but maybe that's why they don't get it. 
There's a principle about weather. Storms aren't caused by hot weather or cold weather alone, although that may be how we experience them, particularly under hot weather, but by a clash between cold masses and warm mass airs. And the greater the temperature difference between the cold air and the hot air mass, the more violent any potential storm will be. Cold air falls, warm air rises, which also accounts for the fact why the, the sun is the principal driver of both weather and climate. So if you eliminate the cold air mass, all the air would be warm, and if you have that, the possibility of storms would kind of vanish. For example, if you had 75 degrees at the equator, or, or at, so yeah, at the equator, at the North Pole, at the South Pole, 75 all the way across the board, would you expect many storms? Not too many, because the, the air masses would all be pretty even, but when you get a differential, that means there's a lot of cold air if these storms are getting worse, which of course, if you think about it logically, wouldn't fit in to a lot of the, uh, the theories behind all of global warming. But as long as there's a sun, and as long as the sun is the source of the Earth's heat, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to have even the fantasy I just mentioned. You're not going to have uh, no storms because it's going to be even heat. The sun can never heat the world equally, much to the chagrin of uh, political egalitarians. So hot air will always keep rising, cold air will keep falling, and storms will come or not come in completely unpredictable patterns. And I think playing the prediction game is a tactic of tyrants and con artists. It's intellectually dishonest, both to oneself and to others, period. You know, it's one thing to plan for contingencies. It's quite another to create false crises and to terrorize people with completely false concerns, you know, which is why, of course, Burton chooses the latter. He says, unfortunately, many of our assumptions on how and where to build roads, culverts, sewers, and other infrastructures to deal with storms are half a century old. Is it time for an update, better information, new data, and more preparation? You bet, he says. And now here it comes. Here's the punchline. That's the point, he writes, of a proposal that comes before... Council Monday, this was this past Monday, June 9th, to spend $1.3 million studying the issue. The study would compile new data on weather patterns, examine what other cities are doing, access current standards and risks associated with them, update watershed studies, and look at developing a green infrastructure plan. It may sound like a lot of money, uh, yeah, it does, but the information could save millions of dollars, like billions, you know, 200 years from now, right? And after all, it's far less expensive to do things right the first time rather than go back and re retrofit everything in light of a new reality. And he keeps talking about the new reality, everything's changing, etc., etc., you know. And he says, uh, most experts accept that while southwestern Ontario is unlikely to receive any more precipitation in total this summer, it will come in more intensity. City engineers already agree, there's that agreement again, that storms today are more intense, more frequent, and last longer than 50 years ago. Now... How do, how do they time a storm? That's what I want to know. Duration, speed, rate of formation, rate of dissipation. Who does this? Who keeps stats like this, particularly back in 1958, if you're comparing it to that year? Do they keep track of every storm or just the major ones? Now, I've been around in London for all of those years, because uh, I'm over 50. And my personal unscientific observation is that the whole opposite of this assertion by the experts, I can't remember the last time I experienced a really serious storm in the city of London. Now, if you're old enough to remember, you might remember back in the 1950s, there was a tornado that traveled all the way from Detroit to Toronto. 
and it killed many people in its wake, basically following the path of the then non-existent 401 highway. And I remember the city of London being completely shut down as though it were an air raid, you know, air raid siren warnings for a, a war coming. And we had that much of a warning. And people were all advised to stay in their basements. I remember me and my mom, we had to get home quick. My dad came home. You know, everybody stayed in the basement and that kind of thing. So, I, you know, here's my plan anyway. Let the people of 2208, let them decide how things should be done in 2208, okay? None of us are going to be alive when all these, uh, you know, rewards for what we're doing then are going to happen. And to plan for the future of people not yet born, you know, just think about the abortion issue in connection with this, I think would both enslave us today and enslave future generations tomorrow, you know, because... Who knows how, what technology we're going to have in the next 200 years? You've only got one life. You're alive today. No one has a right to ask you to sacrifice your one crack at existence for anything or any, anybody that doesn't even exist yet, let alone for a cause as silly as, as the one that we're talking about. This is just patently in, immoral. And it's very religious and very superstitious, like promising, you know, you'll be in heaven after you die. Your reward will come after this life. So, too, whatever rewards are promised by all forms of government, fascism, socialism, environmentalism, they're always pushed into some unforeseeable future, usually extending beyond the lifespan of the person being forced to pay the price for the latest experiment, and that's as far as we're going to go today. We'll pick up more on this next week, because I'm telling you folks, this issue won't go away, but we will visit other issues as we continue. So, please join us again next week, and until then, be right, stay right, act right, think right, and do right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be Circle eight night in a bookstore restocking the shelves, right? Best thing about that job is nobody else is around, so I could put the books where I wanted to, you know? So I put all the books on claustrophobia in this little tiny room at the back of the store. <laughs> all the books on fear of heights I'd pile up on the top shelf, you know? All the books on paranoia I just intersperse. <laughs> You'd see them wherever you went. <laughs>